I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at three verses there at the beginning of our message. So we want everybody to be able to look along. We've got some Bibles here. The guys have. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And those are marked for you at Romans 16. In his book, Christianity in Crisis, written by Hank Hanegraaff, I believe we have a few copies of that in our resource center, Christianity in Crisis. Hank Hanegraaff says, everyone wants to know the secret. You know, the secret to health, the secret to wealth, the secret to successful relationships, the secret to making a fortune on Wall Street, the seeking to, the secret to maintaining your perfect weight. The list is endless. I heard that amen out there. So when author Rhonda Byrne informed the world that she had discovered the secret to life, a secret harnessed by, quote, the greatest people in history, Plato, Shakespeare, Newton, Hugo, Beethoven, Lincoln, Emerson, Edison, Einstein, well, the world took notice. Within weeks, her book, The Secret, topped the bestseller list and it morphed into a cultural phenomenon. According to Oprah, the thoughts and feelings that you put out into the world, both good and bad, are exactly what is always coming back to you. So you have the life that you've created. I've been talking about this for years on my show. I just never called it the secret. So what is the secret? Well, it's something called the law of attraction. Says Byrne, the author of the book, the greatest teachers who have ever lived have told us that the law of attraction is the most powerful law in the universe. As she goes on to explain, the law of attraction is the law of creation. You create your life through your thoughts and the law of attraction. And every single person does the same. And it doesn't just work if you know about it. It has always been working in your life and every other person's life throughout history. She goes on to say the creative process used in the secret, which she says was taken from the New Testament in the Bible, is an easy guideline for you to create what you want in three easy steps. Ask, believe, and receive. She points to herself as a prime example. To transform herself from fat to thin, she thought thin thoughts. And did not so much as look at fat people. If you see people who are overweight, do not observe them. Which means don't look up here. (laughs) If you see people who are overweight, do not observe them, but immediately switch your mind to the picture of you in your perfect body and feel it. And as a result, she says, I now maintain my perfect weight of 116 pounds And I can eat whatever I want. According to the secret, the error is to think that food is responsible for weight gain. She says the most common thought that people hold, and I held it too, is that food was responsible for my weight gain. That is a belief that does not serve you. And in my mind now, it's complete balderdash. Food is not responsible responsible for putting on weight. It is your thought that food is responsible for putting on weight. That actually has food put on weight. Remember, she says, thoughts are the primary cause of everything and the rest is effects from those thoughts. Think perfect thoughts and the result must be perfect weight. Now, while at first blush, that rhetoric might seem silly, there is a real danger in her reasoning. Just as her followers must avoid fat people for fear of becoming fat, so they too must avoid cancer victims for fear of contracting cancer. Or poor people for fear of becoming poor. In other words, this plan that she says came out of the pages of the New Testament tells you to avoid the very people that Jesus tells us to care for. She says do not so much as look at them. And Byrne, that author, and her contributors are remarkably open with the respect, with respect to the many dangers in, in the secret, the book, The Secret's Dark Underbelly. 
As such, she points out events in history where, quote, masses of lives were lost. While some might find it incomprehensible that multitudes could have attracted the same massacre, she doesn't think it's incomprehensible. She says if if people believe they can be in the wrong place at the wrong time and that they have no control over outside circumstances, those thoughts of fear, separation, and powerlessness, if persistent, can attract them to being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Nothing can come into your existence unless you summon it through persistent thoughts. Indeed, as contributing authors of The Secret of Made Plain, victims of suffering and tragedy attracted those circumstances to their lives. The primary cause of everything, whether good or bad, is the law of attraction. If something came to you, you drew it with prolonged thought. You are the master of the universe, and the genie is there to serve you. Now, for Rhonda Byrne, the genie is the law of attraction. For Joel Osteen, another cultural phenomenon, the genie is the word of faith. And as such, he's committed to the notion that faith is a force and that words are the containers of the force. And through the force of faith, people can create their own realities. As he explains in his mega bestseller, Your Best Life Now, quote, you have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is a spiritual principle, and it works whether you are saying what you're saying is good or bad, positive or negative. And so according to Osteen, who influences the lives of tens of millions of people in more than a 100 nations worldwide through his weekly television broadcasts, his New York Times best-selling books, his sold-out international speaking tours, and his weekly uh, top ten podcasts. According to him, it's not enough to merely think positively. You need to speak positively about yourself. You need to hear it over and over again, he says. Now, why am I telling you about these apostles of positive confession? Well, it's because the last several weeks we've been in a series in the book of Job. And we've encountered this very error there. The error is seen in the advice that Job receives from three friends who visit Job upon hearing the news that he's lost his possessions and his family and his personal health. And the friends offer advice to Job that is all based on an understanding of something something called the retribution principle. And they say this retribution principle is an absolute. It's the idea that you always reap what you sow. Not just that you usually do, you always do. So if bad things have happened, you caused it by sowing bad. If good things have happened, it's because you've sown good things to make them happen. Now, in these previous weeks in the series, we've refuted the retribution principle. And if you haven't been able to be with us, you can hear those prior messages on our website. But suffice it to say for now that an absolute understanding of the retribution principle leaves no room for grace. Since grace is getting what you did not sow. (laughs) It leaves no room for God's mercy either. One has defined the difference between mercy and grace this way. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. And mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Thank God that the retribution principle and sowing and reaping are not absolute. And the error of Job's friends, led by the main spokesman, a a man named Eliphaz is that people make their own destinies. And God is, in effect, hamstrung in that he cannot act outside of this supposed universal and absolute law of cause and effect. You do right, and God gives good things. You do bad, God gives bad things. And this places God in a passive position. He's just watching and reacting. You are in control. And that error is propagated by false teachers on the radio and on television. 
teachers who promote something called the prosperity gospel. You think and you talk and you do right and you will prosper in all areas of your life, they say. Well, it's not the gospel at all. But I'm concerned that some may have been influenced by it. And so I've taken the last week and now this week to expose and refute it. And as last week, I will be mentioning names. Which means I'm judging the errors of these false teachers. Now, the Bible actually commands us to do that in several places. And I went over that last week. And if, again, if you weren't here, then I encourage you to listen to that so you know where the Bible tells us that we must at times judge and refute false teaching. But for those of you who may be here for the first time, I want you to know I don't usually spend two weeks exposing false teachers. But I feel it my solemn duty to do so for the sake of God's flock. And this is in keeping with the passage that I've asked you to turn to. It's yet another of the many in the Bible that warn us about false teachers. Romans 16 and verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Now, quickly, before I tell you what it is these false teachers are propagating and saying, I want you to see in those three verses just a few things. First of all, it starts with, I urge you. That means I'm stressing the importance of this for you. At the end of this letter of 16 chapters, so this is the end, and as Paul who wrote it is signing off, and he gives greetings from other people just before that, you'll see that in chapter 16, But now he's signing off and he's saying, now there's all of this that I've told you in chapters 1 through 15. There's all of this truth, all of this doctrine about the gospel that I've given you. And now as I sign off, I want to urge you, I want to stress the importance to you of being on your guard. And that's why it then says, watch out. Be alert. Understand that there are such people who are out there propagating something other than what I've told you. In these 15 chapters. At the end of verse 17, keep away from them. And that means, does it not, that you have to judge them. You have to judge that they're wrong. So that you can know who to keep away from. Jesus said, as I told you last week in John 7:24, quote, judge righteous judgment. Then in verse 18, these people are not serving our Lord. Their own appetites, smooth talk, and flattery are their M.O. That is, they engage in style over substance. And so it's flashy, and it looks good, and it's multi-million dollar, but it's not true. And then in verse 19... Be wise then about what is good and innocent about what is evil. That requires discernment. Being able to distinguish between things that differ. God's people, if we are going to be mature and not tossed to and fro, back and forth by every wind of doctrine and every teacher that comes along, have to be people who mature in our discernment, distinguishing what God says from all other ways. And so today, again, let's ask God to help us, friends, as we look at what these false teachers are saying and so that we can discern their error and cling to the truth of the gospel. Father, we're thankful to you for this opportunity to gather in your presence as your people and to open your word. Lord, we ask you to help us now as we look at this teaching that has been going on for many decades now. 
has captured the imaginations of many, many in our country. And internationally, Lord, we believe that your heart grieves when the purity of the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is perverted by those who are serving their own appetites. Help us, Lord, to be people who are mature in a mature way discerning what it is we're presented with. And help us, Lord, to cling all the more tightly, hold fast to the truth of the gospel, and may it be increasingly more precious to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, of all the many, many errors of the prosperity gospel heresy, some of the most basic and the most serious is their heretical teaching regarding God. And I said that to you last week. And as each week we have an outline inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out now. And you'll notice that the first major point is grayed out. You can probably barely see it there. That's because we filled that in last week. And then the first sub-point, we filled that in. I just briefly repeat that for you. False teachers distort God. They distort God. T.D. Jakes is a oneness Pentecostal. That means he believes an ancient heresy called modalism. That is that God is not three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but rather those titles refer to three manifestations of God. Benny Hinn said in one of his large stadium crusades, revelation knowledge is coming on me. And he says, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each a trinity. Each one has a body, soul, and spirit. What I'm saying is, there's nine of them. And I mentioned last week, he was asked about that a few weeks later by a Christian magazine, and he said, oh, that was a dumb statement. They distort God. And that first sub-point that we saw last week is they devalue God. And you may ask the question, well, how can anyone believe in these con artists? It's obvious that they're only in it for the money and they're ripping people off. But I ask the question, well, what if it worked to examine your heart and my heart? What if it worked? What if you did get some monetary benefit from your service to God? And I quoted for you C.S. Lewis screw tape letters. And remember, the screw tape letters are about a chief demon who is training his nephew to uh, be an effective demon in thwarting the, the work of God. And God in the screw tape letters is called the enemy. Screw tape is this chief demon, his nephew that he's training is Wormwood. And screw tape says this to Wormwood We want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. But understand this. The enemy, that is God, will not be used as a convenience. And that's why the Bible says at the end of Romans 11, in this great doxology and praise to God, from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. So they devalue God. But I say in your outline, secondly, they defame God. They devalue God, but they defame God as well. Kenneth Copeland says, God is not some creature that stands 28 feet tall and he's got hands, you know, as big as basketballs. That's not the kind of creature he is. He's very much like you and me. A being that stands somewhere between 6 foot 2 and 6 3 that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred pounds, a little better, and has a hand span nine inches across. Now, I've read through the Bible a few times, and I've never found any of that. None of it, nada. Copeland says, Adam's body and God were exactly the same. He goes on to say, I was shocked... When I found out who the biggest failure in the Bible actually is. The biggest one is God. I mean, he lost his top ranking, most anointed angel. The first man he ever created, the first woman he ever created, the whole earth and all the fullness therein. A third of the angels at least. That's a big loss, man, he says. 
You see, in order for the prosperity gospel to have a following, in order for it to work, then humanity has to be elevated and God has to be de-elevated. And so they defame God. They make God less than what he is. Here's what God says about himself. I am God. And there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me. And God goes on to say through the prophet Isaiah, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Contrary to the false teachers who must, in order to propagate their false teaching about you being the center of the universe, they must then devalue God, and they must defame God. God will have none of it. My purpose will stand. He goes on to say, through the prophet Isaiah, that I will call a man to do my bidding. I will call a bird from the east to fulfill my plan. From small things like birds and larger things like humanity, I, God, control them all. The false teachers distort God by devaluing Him and defaming Him. And I say as well in your outline, they dethrone God. They devalue him, they defame him, and they seek to dethrone him. Frederick Price, another of these many prosperity teachers, says, God can't do anything in this earth realm except what we, the body of Christ, allow him to do. Now that statement is so, that's so, that's so foreign and so contrary to tradition that most evangelicals would burn me at the stake. All in favor? Because they consider that statement to be just heresy. Yep. Rod Parsley. Rod Parsley is a guy that I have some dear friends. Some of you know that I grew up Pentecostal. I still have dear friends from my Pentecostal days. I don't mean to be unnecessarily unkind, but one of the things that I noticed as I was growing up and I've noticed in the years since about our Pentecostal friends is a distinct lack of discernment. Many otherwise good people, but a lack of discernment. I have very good friends who think Rod Parsley is great. Rod Parsley says, why does God say ask of me? Why does he say that? Because he can't do it on his own. He can't get what he wants on his own because he placed you in authority on this earth. Again, Copeland. God's on the outside looking in. He doesn't have any legal entree into the earth. The thing don't belong to him. He says, you see how sassy the devil was in the presence of God in the book of Job? Now let me just stop there. We've been going through Job. And so he must be reading a different, but there must be a different book of Job. Because the one we've been going through has Satan and the angels presenting themselves before God. But he says, you see how sassy the devil was in the presence of God? God said, where have you been? Wasn't any of God's business. Satan didn't even have to answer if he didn't want to. You see, this is the position that God's been in. Sometimes people say, well... If God's running things, he's doing a lousy job, but he hasn't been running them, says Copeland. Well, what does God say about himself? What does the Bible say about the true and living God? Again, the prophet Isaiah, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket and weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You see, friends, God will have none of this nonsense. As if there's someone out there who commands me and instructs me and I'm waiting for you to tell me how to act. 
Hear this, friends. God does not react. God acts. And God acts because God plans and God is able to plan because God controls and God controls because God is absolutely sovereign. And anything else is not the God of the Bible. It is a different God and a different so-called gospel. The false teachers distort God. And I say in your outline, they exalt humanity. They distort God. They devalue him. And they defame him. They dethrone him. But they exalt humanity. They exalt humanity in a couple of ways. One is this. They assign power to humanity. So if you're going to do this prosperity gospel thing, this name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, as some say, you've got the power in your words, so you say it, and then it happens. You imagine it, and it comes to, comes to be. But in order for that to happen, you've got to distort God, you've got to devalue God, and you have to exalt humanity. They assign power to humanity. Benny Hinn. Adam was a super being when God created him. I don't know whether people know this, but he was the first superman that really ever lived. First of all, the scriptures declare clearly that he had dominion over the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, which means he used to fly. Of course, how can you have dominion over the birds and not be able to do what they do? The word dominion in the Hebrew clearly declares that if you have dominion over a subject, that you do everything that subject does. Let me just stop here. Benny Hinn has no earthly idea anything about Hebrew. None. Zero. He has no theological training whatsoever. But he says the word dominion in Hebrew clearly declares if you have dominion over a subject, you do everything that subject does. In other words, that subject, if it does something you cannot do, you don't have dominion over it. Really? Kim watches her little nieces five days a week. They are now three and five years old, respectively, but she's been watching them for years. And so I've had an opportunity to get reacquainted with things that infants could do a few years ago. Ever seen an infant lay there and then bring his or her feet up to their mouth? Anybody here can do that? In order to be an authority over someone, you have to be able to do what it does. And then he goes on to say, Adam not only flew, he flew to space. He was, with one thought, he would be on the moon. Joel Osteen. When you say of the Lord, you are healthy, you are whole, you are free, you are blessed, you are prosperous. When you say it, God has promised he will do it. If you are not sharing in his favor, you might want to watch your words. Here is the key. If you don't unleash your words in the right direction, if you don't call in favor, you will not experience those blessings. Nothing happens unless we speak. Release your faith with your words. This is called the power of positive confession, speaking faith words. It has this magical effect upon God. Joyce Meyer says she has a number of things that she confesses daily with her words so that they come into being. Here's one of them. I prosper in everything I put my hand to. I have prosperity in all areas of my life, spiritually, financially, mentally, and socially. Here's another. Pain cannot successfully come against my body because Jesus bore all my pain. I lay hands on the sick and they recover. I speak it, it happens. I receive speaking engagements in person by phone and or by mail every day. I'm speaking it so that it it happens. Frederick Price again. When I first became a Christian, they didn't tell me I could do anything. What they told me to do was that whenever I prayed, I should always say the will of the Lord be done. Now, doesn't that sound humble? It does. Sounds like humility. It's really stupidity, he says. 
I mean, you know, really, we insult God. I mean, we really do insult our Heavenly Father. We do. We really insult Him without ever realizing it. If you have to say, if it be thy will or thy will be done, if you have to say that, then you're calling God a fool because He's the one that told us to ask. If God's going to give me what He wants me to have, then it doesn't matter what I ask. I'm only going to get what God wants me to have. So that's an insult to God's intelligence. To say your will be done. Except, God walked the earth. And on one occasion, God in the flesh told us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And do you remember? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God said to pray, your will be done, Fred. In James chapter 4, it warns of being boastful about our plans because we don't control the outcome of our plans. Only God does. And it says you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In the context of prayer itself, 1 John chapter 5 says this, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything, notice, according to His will, He hears us. But remember, you're in control, and you have to be in control. We have to elevate humanity. We have to de-elevate God in order for this to work. And so it means you have to distort all sorts of teachings in the Bible. They're very clear. Even things like stories in the life of Jesus, one of which is in John chapter 5, where Jesus encountered a man who was, had not, never been able to walk. And the Bible tells us that he, would, he was by a pool in a town called Bethesda, where it was thought that if you could get into the pool at certain times, you could be healed, but he could never get into the pool. But you're supposed to be able to control this. So guess what the faith teachers do? (laughs) They say this guy was lazy. Here's what the Bible says. One who was at the pool of Bethesda had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus approached him. And he said to Jesus, I have no one to help me into the pool. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And let me just stop there. Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, others, I've read them ridiculing this man. You've been there for 38 years. You could scoot a couple inches a year. Till you finally get in the pool. You see, because there's always got to be a cause and effect. And so the reason that you're here must be because of something you did or failed to do. And here's what Jesus did. The next verse says, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And why was he cured? Because he deserved it. Because he had done something? No. Because God is gracious and merciful. And the Bible, far from elevating humanity the way the prosperity gospel must do, says things like this through the psalmist. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. False teachers exalt humanity and our ability to control our own destiny. They assign power to humanity, and I say in your outline as well. They assign status to humanity. Status. Creflo Dollar. You are gods because you came from God, and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part of you is this physical body that you are in. T.D. Jakes. You were made out of God. Now notice, not just you were made by God, you were made out of God. When God created Adam, he says, he put his mouth on him, blew in him the breath of life. 
Again, I've read the Bible. In fact, I just did a series recently on Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, there's nothing about God putting his mouth on Adam. But T.D. Jakes and these guys know Hebrew in ways that I just don't know. And he says that God says, I wanted to see what I looked like. So I made you to be in my image. Now hear this. At the time God made Adam, God had no body. It was not until Jesus came millennia later that God came in the flesh. God had no body. So he could see what he looked like. No permanent manifestation in the flesh. Paul Crouch. Do you know who Paul Crouch is? He's now deceased, but he is the was the founder and the owner of the Trinity Broadcasting Network. It's a cable TV show, and it's the one where most of these charlatans are on. So, don't watch that. But Paul Crouch said, God doesn't even draw a distinction between himself and us. I am a little God. Copeland. Adam was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not even subordinate to God even. Adam is as much like God as you could get just the same as Jesus. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. Got a long quote here. I want to spend a few minutes debunking what Creflo Dollar says about this famous and precious passage in Philippians chapter 2. But Creflo Dollar says this, Philippians chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 5, he says. We're going to look at it together in just a moment. But he says, I want you to look at verse 5. He says, look at this now. Verse 5, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So now with that in mind, what attitude is it that you want me to make sure that the same attitude is in me? What is this way of thinking? Verse 6, here it is. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Let this attitude that was in Jesus be in you. Let this way of thinking that was in Jesus be in you. Let this confidence that was in Jesus be in you. Jesus didn't think it was robbery. He didn't think it was a dishonor. He didn't. He didn't think it was. Now, oh, you ought not think this way? No, he said, let this attitude, let this way of thinking be in you. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, if I'm to take what he said here and put it on, then my whole attitude should be, I have equality with God. That's my way of thinking. Now, somebody says, well, it's hard to think that way. Well, keep saying it. I have equality with God. Talk yourself into it. You've talked yourself into other things. Talk yourself into this attitude. Talk yourself into this way of thinking. Talk yourself into it until you build a confidence on the outside of you that I have equality with God. Now, when the guy says the storm is over, Get ready. It's going to blow your house down. You go out on the porch because you have this way of thinking on the inside of you. And you say, peace be still. You will not cause any destruction on this property. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then he moves on down to verse 15. He says, and I'm quoting again. This is so that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is God's desire that we shine as light. He says, notice, he says, we're not going to shine as lights until we change the way we think. We're not going to shine as lights until we accept our equality with God. We're not going to shine as lights until we stop thinking that being equal with God is a dishonor and a robbery. He says... But when we take hold of this way of thinking, in this crooked and perverse generation, he says, we're going to shine as lights. And now we will be the reflection of God in this earth. He is light. God is light. And he says, now we can shine in this world like he shines and truly be a reflection of God in this earth. You need to start thinking and saying over and over again, let this attitude be in you. You're equal with God. Now, please turn to Philippians 2. And if you have one of the Bibles that the guys distributed, it's page 819. Page 819. And let's quickly look at this together and see what Creflo Dollar has distorted. 
In verse 5 of Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as, as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Therefore, my dear friends, verse 12. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And then these are the verses that Creflo Dollar referred to, he went down to, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without uh, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine a among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Now, what is all of that about? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, who wrote it, is instructing Christians at the church at Philippi regarding their relationships with one another. And in verses 5 through 8, He uses the example of Jesus to say that in our relationships, we should not be in it for what we get out of it, but for what we can give to other people. And Jesus is our example in this, because though he had the splendor of heaven, he was willing to leave that. He was willing to lay aside his rights for the good of others. And he obeyed, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Verse eight. And then verse 12, therefore, as you have always obeyed, now continue to do that based on the example of Jesus in his obedience. The example isn't he's God and you're God. The example is he obeyed, now you obey. Let me ask you. You know, Jesus came to earth and now every knee is going to bow before Jesus. Does that mean every knee's going to bow before me too? And he's given him the name that's above every name. Do I get that name too? Well, then how can it be above every name? And this all goes back to the beginning of the chapter. Of chapter 2 in Philippians. About how to interact with one another. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. They so distort the word of God that they lie. Joel Osteen. I say this humbly. I've come to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is this. I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. (laughs) I can expect people to go out of their way to want to help me. Well, what about this example of Jesus? Here's what he said of himself when he walked the earth. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the great apostle Paul understood that before almighty God, he's absolutely nothing. That his strength comes only from God. And it's only when he is weak That he is strong. And do you remember the context in which he said that? He was sick. He had a physical ailment. And he pleaded with the Lord three times, he says, to take it away. Here's what 2 Corinthians 12 says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away from me. 
But the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Far from the heresy of the prosperity preachers that exalt humanity and give them this exalted position, false teachers distort God. They exalt humanity. And then lastly in your outline, false teachers are worldly. They're worldly. And I say they're worldly for this reason. They are focused on the here and now. The Bible's focus is on later, friends. The Bible's focus is on our reward later in the presence of God. And whatever he graciously gives to us. But they're focused on money and the here and now and on fallen values. But the Bible is replete with passages that say our focus is to be somewhere else. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We're reminded in 1 Peter 2, you are foreigners and exiles in this world. Famously in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher to the then largest congregation in the world in the 19th century in London, said this, I believe that it is anti-Christian and unholy for any Christian to live with the object of accumulating wealth. You will say, are we not to strive all we can to get all the money we can? He says, you may do so. And I cannot doubt but what, in so doing, you may do service in the cause of God. But what I said was that to live with the object of accumulating wealth is anti-Christian. And he is absolutely right. Allah, James chapter 5, and the many warnings about money throughout the Bible. Remember I mentioned the screw tape letters and this demon screw tape and his nephew Wormwood that he's training. In another passage, screw tape says this, do not be deceived Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. And asks why he has been forsaken. And he still obeys. Satan's cause is never more in danger. Than when you have a Christian. Who lives as though he or she is not of this world. And says though everything is falling apart. And says as Job says. Though he slay me. Yet will I trust in him. Satan's cause is never more in danger. And so our take-home truth is this. False teachers exchange the truth about God for the, the lie. The lie, not just a lie. Because that's a quote. That's why I have it in quotation marks. That's a quote from Romans chapter 1 that says this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and the a lie is literally in Greek, the lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so many have wondered, what is the lie? What's the ultimate lie that Satan wants you to believe? He wants you to get to a point where you distort God and you elevate humanity. And you live for the here and now and for yourself. That's what he wants you to do. And I believe he told that lie the first time he spoke with humanity. In the garden. When he said this to them. You will be like God. And that's what the false teachers are telling you. You will be like God. Friends, we're going to bow and pray.
It's a grievous thing that we've gone through these last couple of weeks. But the good news is this. There really is the true and living gospel. Perversions, though they are ubiquitous, though they are on the airwaves, though they are in print, perversions of the gospel cannot take away from the truth of the gospel that is in the word of God, the good news. And the good news is this, that the God who is sovereign and who is omnipotent and who is omniscient and does all that he pleases and could by his justice have crushed me and crushed you, has instead in his love sent his son to take the punishment that belonged to you and to me. In his mercy and in his grace, he has given us what we do not deserve and not given us what we do deserve. By Jesus taking our sin on the cross and bearing the complete punishment for our sins, past, present, and even future. Now, if you understand who God is and his complete holiness and you understand who you are as a sinner, then that is good news and that's what the gospel means. That's the gospel. That I can have a relationship with this God because of the initiative of this God. And then this God takes control of my life. And I want him to take control of my life. And he leads me in the direction that he has for me. And he knows every path that I will take because he's designed every turn and twist. Every one of them. And do you know why he's done it? Ultimately, for his glory. He has saved me for his glory and he is sanctifying me for his glory. And that is the purpose for which God does everything. To him be the glory forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now with mixed emotion, troubled, even angered at the blatant false teaching of so many. And yet at the same time, Lord, uh, encouraged and joyful because this imitation gospel, this perverse gospel, this false gospel means that there is the true thing, the real article, the authentic gospel. We thank you for that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who is the center of that in who he is and what he has done for us. And so, Lord, help us to cling to that. Help us to understand that and know that cold so that we cannot be swayed by any false teaching. Help us to be people, Lord, who are discerning and who cling to that which is good and abhor that which is evil. I pray that as a result of these two weeks together that your people are informed and warned and that they will stay away from those who teach these false things about you and about us. As a result of that, Lord, may our hearts and our minds be focused upon the truth that is in you. And may we serve you in spirit and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.